You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. What is science? Where does it come from? Is it a cupboard? Hello and welcome to Wonder Cupboard, the show that asks, if science made the periodic table, who made the chairs? Uh, my name is Ian. My name is Eleanor. And uh, what are we going to be talking about this episode, Eleanor? Well, it's very topical. So um, it's something that refers to something that happened last year and probably none of our listeners remember. Well done me on this. (laughs) Um, So this is about uh, Flat Earth. So last year, American rapper B.O.B. or Bob, I'm not sure how to call him. I like to call him Bob because I think it's funnier. I like to call him uh, B.O.B. That's lovely. Dot. is that his full name? Yeah, it's Mr. He's Mr. B. Dot. Uh, <laughs> middle name O. Dot. First name B. Dot. So, Mr. B. Dot, if we want to be, in, if we want to be um, respectful. Mm. Um, please don't call me Mr. B. Dot. <laughs> Mr. B. Dot was my father. <laughs> um, so, he launched a funding campaign to prove that the earth is flat. Okay. Last year. Yeah, as a rapper, as a rapper might. Oh, yeah. And he called it quite daringly, and I quote, show B dot O dot B dot the curve. So he, he dared people to prove that the earth is flat. And consequently, he got in a Twitter discussion with physicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, who at some point uh, during this exchange said that the idea that the earth is flat is medieval, that the shape of the earth had been determined in antiquity, but then got somehow forgotten and resurfaced in modern times. So this is, a quite, uh, this is quite a widespread idea, and a lot of people grew up thinking that we owe it to Columbus to remind us of the truth. So the story goes that since he wanted to go west in order to reach east, then he must have known the earth was spherical, which makes sense. But what makes us think that everyone else didn't? Mm. This belief is even more bizarre if you consider that the purpose of the trip was commercial gain. The routes that had been used thus far to reach India and China were becoming inaccessible to Westerners due to the expansion of the Ottoman Empire. So it was only wise, given that the earth was round, to try and reach them by sea, coming from the other side. Which, if you think about it, makes sense. If we take the perspective of those who think that Columbus was just this groundbreaking genius. The only guy who knew. Exactly. Then the story sounds a bit absurd of how that would come about, right? So I tried to imagine the dialogue between Queen Isabella of Spain, who was uh, his um, venture capitalist for this uh, (laughs) enterprise, and Columbus. How can I help, random Italian guy? I'd like three ships, ma'am, 88 men, the title of governor of any new land I discover, and one-tenth of the profits made from it forever. Oh, and I'd love to be called Great Admiral of the Ocean Sea, please. Um, okay. And, and why, pray tell, should I give you all this? Because the Earth is round. I and everyone I have ever known, including priests and professors, think it's flat. Well, it's not. You'll see. Okay, then you're basically just checking you won't fall off, correct? Indeed. So why do you need three ships? Well, I don't like travelling light. So that sounds... That sounds very realistic. So, uh, yeah, that's obviously ridiculous. Yeah. I think that conversation would not happen. Yeah. <laughs> because everyone else knew that the Earth was round at the same time. Exactly. Of course the business opportunity was apparent to the Crown of Spain, in fact, they even forced the local town, Palos de la Frontera, which is the place where the three ships left from as well, to contribute money to the trip. Um, they must have been pretty confident in their investment. It was a really expensive expedition. The cost of the whole operation was around 2 million maravedis, of which around 1.14 million was provided by the royals. This is difficult to translate in modern money, but it was a lot. And incidentally, what with the new pointless continent and everything that just kind of appeared at some point. That's America. That is America. Well done! (laughs) Geography! And history! Mm. 
Um, so the, the return of invest on investment turned out to be extremely meager. Um, so they just got a, a few thousands of Maravedis out of it, which mm. compared to the millions they had invested is <laughs> not very much. It's typical, isn't it? You go out trying to make some money and you discover a continent instead. Oh, yeah, that happens all the time to me. Mm. Um, so if you're looking for the first empirical proof that the Earth is round... So when you say empirical? So when I say empirical, I mean based on experience. Okay. Um, that could be an experiment or an observation or an expedition in this case. Mm-hmm. And that's opposed to theoretical, which is based on logic. So you start from a principle and deduce something theoretically, but without any uh, practical evidence. Okay, so to give an example, let's say, let's say, give the conjecture, Ian has eaten dime bars today. This yes. is something that's going to come back quite a few <laughs> times, this particular example. What would empirical proof be of that? So empirical proof would be that I've seen a trail of wrappers um, <laughs> opened on the floor with crumbs of dime bars. And at the end, you with uh, your face covered in chocolate and a happy grin. Mm, yeah, that sounds quite realistic. That's empirical proof. But even if I hadn't seen you doing that, actually, like it would be empirical proof also if I just saw that dime bars were missing and you had been the only person in the house. Because it was based on your experience and and observable evidence. Yeah, observable evidence. Yeah. Um, well, a theoretical approach to the same question, let's say I don't have access to the house. Mm-hmm. Okay. All I know... I've changed the locks. You've changed the locks because you just want to live with your uh, dime bar mistresses. <laughs> <laughs> You've built a doll out of dime bars and that's your new girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> um, it would be a bit tricky in summer. Like she would melt on the sofa. Well, I'd have to install air conditioning. There's a whole thing. It's, you know, I've got it planned out. All right. Just, just... don't question me. <laughs> So let's say that, okay, you've changed the locks. And mm-hmm. I'm like, hmm, I wonder. <laughs> you know what it is? Is he in there with that dime bar harlot? <laughs> exactly. So I have to go from first principles. Um, in this case, the first principles would be Ian likes dime bars, which also comes from experience. But let's not get into that because it's it's quite complicated. But let's say the first principle is... Ian likes dime bars. Mm. Okay. Then I can deduce that there is a very high chance that since he likes dime bars, he might like to eat some in my absence. Mm. So I can say, for instance, there is an 80% chance that at this point, Ian is eating dime bars. That's more of a theoretical approach to this. You can go even further with theoretical with theoretical approaches like modeling in science, for instance, that's mostly theoretical. So you just uh, come up with an algorithm and run different scenarios of, for instance, how an organism is developing or how... How fat Ian's getting. Exactly. And you can just project this and Mm. see how it would go. For instance, yeah, a prediction, for instance, is mostly theoretical because I don't know the future. I have no experience of the future, but I'm trying to kind of make an educated guess as to what would happen. So in this case, yes, Ian would become really fat. Our beautiful sofa would become really chocolatey. (laughs) And I probably wouldn't regret this at this point. (laughs) Because um, it sounds like a sorry state of affairs. Mm. I hope this is clear. It's clear. I, I, you wouldn't need a whole episode on the difference between theoretical and empirical, which would probably appear, appeal only to myself and another 10 people in the whole of the Northern Hemisphere. But it's that's what it is. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking for the first empirical proof that the Earth is round, then we have to wait for Ferdinand Magellan. The Portuguese man who is credited for having circumnavigated the globe for the first time, right? He left Spain with his ships in September 1519. The expedition came back to Spain three years later. So he went all the way around 
And at that point, if you can manage to come back that way, it means that the Earth is round, right? Mm -hmm. Fun fact. Technically, Magellan did not circumnavigate the Earth because he was killed in the Philippines. Uh, classic error. Yeah. As a cla that, gets, that gets people circumnavigating the globe all the time. I know, right? Um, but his crew did. So the expedition... <laughs> Did. I think um, it's very unfair on the crew that Magellan gets the credit. I know, right? <laughs> like, who was leading afterwards? Who was like, well, he's dead, but we're going to carry on. I think that guy should be given some credit. It's like if Derek went out on a pub crawl yeah. and, um, you know, had to be sent home in a taxi after the third pub. Yeah. Uh, but the rest of the lads mm. carried on till the fifth. You don't start congratulating Derek. No. He failed. Yeah, just because he came up with the idea. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's not like he invented pub crawls, right? No. Ridiculous. Yeah. But there you go. So back to Columbus. Some people even believe that the church, stuck in the dark ages, tried to ostracize Columbus. Because according to the Bible, the earth is flat. The truth of the matter is that while Columbus was planning the first trip to allegedly reach Eastern Asia, a commission was indeed poking holes in his plan. And many members of the commission were indeed priests. However, those who criticised him were dubious for practical reasons. They thought the earth was too big for Columbus's plan to work, and they were right. So they were following Ptolemy's calculations that were made around 150 AD, which were not um, correct by today's standards, but they were more realistic than Columbus's. So according to the calculations, Columbus and his crew would have starved to death if they attempted that trip, which they would have done if it weren't for America. Right. Like, they would have died. <laughs> <laughs> so well, if it wasn't for accidentally finding America, toast. Toast. Yeah, they would have just run out of supplies. Mm. Because Columbus thought that the Earth was much smaller than what it really is. Like, a quarter mm. of what is today believed to be the size of the Earth. He was incredibly wrong. And yet, he managed to become the ideal of the rationalist hero towering over the ignorance of the dark ages <laughs> when actually he was just very lucky yes very very lucky insanely so in your hometown of Turin, yeah there is a a little kind of oh, it's not quite a statue but it's like a figure yeah. of columbus and he's sort of in the bronze figure his his fing little finger is sort of sticking out slightly isn't it yeah and my understanding is that as people go to take their exams, they go past the Columbus figure and just um, rub his little finger for good luck. Yeah, which is absurd. It's absurd. And yet he makes much more sense as a good luck totem than he does <laughs> <laughs> as a rational master of the globe and seas because he was going off on a doomed journey. <laughs> that is true. That's one of the so luckiest things. It makes more friend. sense. <laughs> That is so very true. Mm. So where did this idea that Neil deGrasse Tyson seems to hold that the Middle Ages didn't know about the shape of the Earth come from, really? It seems to have originated in the 19th century. So it's very recent. And it has to do with the opposition between science and the church. So at the time, faith in science was on the rise and rationalists needed heroes to identify with. Columbus, allegedly towering over his clerical adversaries, blah, 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 was a really appealing one. The seeds for this astonishing historical misunderstanding were planted during the Enlightenment. So that was a century or so be before the 19th century. The idea that science and Christianity were at odds started to spread at this time. So this was based on some actual historical fact. 
including all the controversies surrounding people like Copernicus and Galileo, who, by the way, we have talked about uh, on our first episode. 001, Galileo. Yeah, should you wish to go a bit deeper into this. And by the way, his relationship with the church was more nuanced, as people think. Anyway. But you'll have to listen to that episode to find out how. Yes, teaser. I'm just trying to tease. We're we're terrible at teasers. Mm. God. Um, So anyway, those controversies were about specific issues. Or mostly one issue, which was the central place of the Earth in the universe. Not the whole of science. Um, Enlightenment enlightenment thinkers were also ignoring a lot of ways in which Christianity and other religions had actually been an ally for scientific inquiry. Basically, they were in selection bias. They only picked the cases that supported their thesis and came to unwarranted general conclusions. So from the fact that some Christian churches were against some specific scientific claims... They concluded that all religion is the enemy of all science and looked for evidence of that, ignoring clues to the contrary. So this was exacerbated by the spreading of the theory of evolution. So here we're jumping ahead to the 19th century, which did attract some uh, theology-based criticism. The relationship between science and religion was starting to be described as a war at the end of the 19th century, after Darwin published his major works. The conflict peaked between 1870 and 1920. A lecture in particular brought this topic to the attention of the public. It was delivered in 1869 by Andrew Dixon White, who was one of the founders of Cornell University, the first explicitly secular American university. The lecture, in which he defended science from anti-Darwinists, was published in full on the New York Daily Tribune the next day. White then uh, went on to write more on the subject, including a book called History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom, plus a lot of papers and a pamphlet aimed at educated Americans, and they all used this uh, war metaphor. Mm -hmm. This ended up popularizing the idea held today by grass Tyson and many others, that there wasn't any room in the extremely Christian Middle Ages for around Earth. But what did they really think? So let's start from antiquity. Ancient civilizations are all believed to have held that the Earth was flat, circular and floating on water. This is common to ancient Egyptians, Mesopotamians, Hebrews, and in Homeric texts, so early Greek. The first we know of people talking of a spherical Earth is in ancient Greece. Pythagoras appears to have been the first one to mention it, and he lived mostly in the 6th century BC. As well as loving triangles. Nerd. Nerd. (laughs) Pythagoras was a bit of a mystic. So his reasons were mostly religious. The sphere was considered a perfect perfect shape. And it was only reasonable that God would create a planet in that shape. So by the way, this is a good example of a theoretical approach to deciding what shape the earth is. It's like, oh, God is perfect and the sphere is perfect. So blah, blah, blah. Mm. Um, But not everyone agreed with him. For instance, Anaximenes of Miletus who was a contemporary of Pythagoras, did not agree with him. So now, when you study pre-Socratic Greek philosophers, which are the ancient ones before the big names, it's a bit like meeting the Sailor Moon team. Right. Um, So each of them has an element or a substance that is everything to them. So there's Sailor Fire, who thinks everything is fire, Sailor Water, Sailor Atoms, and so forth. So Anaximenes was sailor air. He thinks, he thought everything was made of air. And he thought that the earth was a rectangle supported by compressed air and had originated by felting. Felting? Yes. So you just like, it's like those things that you see on Pinterest where people stick a needle in wool and pick up the threads and make it look like animals. 
Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he thought that effectively, like, by fluffing the air in a particular way, it had made matter. Yes. Nice. <laughs> nice. Very neat. So if you if you went up to him and went, oh, in Aximenes, I'm feeling a bit gassy today. Well, I'm sure you are. <laughs> we all should be. So that was that was him, and other pre-Socratic Greek philosophers also thought the Earth was flat. And then came Plato, who lived between four hundred twenty-eight or twenty-seven. We're not sure, and three hundred forty-eight or forty-seven. We're not sure. Um, he was a pupil of Socrates, and he seems to just assume that the Earth is round as if it were an accepted truth at the time. So in his play, Phaedo, the characters just mention it as obvious. There's a bit of debate over what he actually thought, though, given the fact that when getting into the details, Plato talks about an object made of pentagons of leather stitched together. So technically that sounds like a dodecahedron, which is a shape with 12 surfaces. However, that might simply have been an approximation of a sphere. If you feel an object like the one he described with wool or air, the result is almost a sphere. So are we saying, and this is breaking news, that Plato invented football? Uh, Yes. Good. Yeah. Because football originally was played with an inflated pig's bladder. Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, wow. And it was only the leather stitching thing came later. So... You know, side podcast. What happened that people forgot the leather pentagon <laughs> stitching approach? And, you know, we had to deal with inflated pig's bladders. Maybe you should think about that, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, carry on. I'm going to work on that podcast, spin off podcast. Traitor. Mm. <laughs> so, continuing with the Socratic dynasty, we get to Aristotle, who was a pupil of Plato's and lived in the 4th century before Christ. He mentioned in his work On the Heavens that it is apparent that the Earth is round because you see different stars depending on where you are. Very clever. Good work, Aristotle. The phases of the moon were also a clue. The shadow of the Earth is projected onto the moon, right? And it's round. Plus... Ships disappear over the horizon, and he wasn't aware of any mass drownings, so the ship must have carried on somewhere. Mm. In this period, there are still hints of dissent, as if not everyone was in full agreement on this. Historians don't really agree on who came first, and the attributions seem a bit murky sometimes, but the idea was there, and it was a very well-established one. The idea of a round Earth was so well accepted that the main concern of researchers at the time was measuring it. And they were pretty successful at that. It's actually quite amazing, but we'll talk about it some other time. But basically, an approximation of the size of the Earth had already been made by early Greek philosophers. Uh, Meanwhile, in India... I'm not sure what was happening at the time because uh, I'm not a historian. But later this, on... If this was a 70s Bond film, then, you know, Meanwhile in India would be accompanied by a very cliched sitar sound. Yeah, I, I steered away you from steered the sitar. Away. You went for more dream sequence there, which I think was wise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so I'm going to talk about... One of the most important mathematicians in Indian history, whose name was Aryabhata. He seems to have arrived independently to the idea that the Earth was round. He was born in 476 AD, so a few centuries later than the Greek philosophers. And he did a lot of important stuff. So he approximated pi, which is amazing. And his technique for solving linear indeterminate equations became known as the pulverizer. <laughs> Sounds like another wrestling move. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> also, he's so fit. 
Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> like I was, um, I was researching uh, his life, and I came across this um, photo of a statue of him in front of Pune University in India, where he's like bare-chested <laughs> and pointing in the distance, and I'm like, yeah, well done. Yeah, why didn't that continue to the modern view of mathematicians? Yeah, exactly. The, the, yeah. Uh. So you also did some work in trigonometry, some on the geometry of spherical objects, which allowed him to predict lunar and solar eclipses. At some point, he stated explicitly that given the apparent motion of the stars, the only possible conclusion is that the Earth, a sphere, was rotating on its axis. Now we just kind of hop over to China. So I don't think it deserves a dream sequence music. It's more like a <laughs> bloom. <laughs> a bloom. Yeah. Okay. This is me hopping over Tibet. Okay. Bloom. <laughs> it's very elegant. Thank you. So China is a notable exception to this general roundest trend. For a long time, the idea that the Earth was flat was actually very persistent in Chinese thought despite relying on empirical observations. In fact, the most debated aspect was the shape of the sky. Because if you assume that the Earth is flat, in order to explain phenomena like the movement of the stars, for instance, all you have to play with is the sky. Something must be rotating if the stars rotate, right? Mm. So if it's not the Earth, it's the other one. Um, so the mainstream uh, position in China for a long time was that the sky was spherical. And this belief persisted quite late until the influence of Western science started to be felt, probably around the 17th century. Again, the evidence is a bit contradictory, but that seems to be the most probable interpretation of what we have. Then I came across some um, claims that Muslim scholars came to the idea of spherical Earth fairly early on as well. And in fact, some measurements of the distance of several places from Mecca are based on calculations that seem to point at the belief that the Earth was round. But I couldn't find enough information to confirm exactly how this happened. So if anyone has any sources or knows about this, please do get in touch with us. Yeah, and you can do that in various ways. You can email us, hello at wondercovered.com. We're on Twitter, at wondercovered. Yeah. We're on Facebook, just search for wondercovered. And we're on Instagram, at wondercoveredpodcast. The odd one out. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, let us know. Let us know. So let's let's go back to the West and get to the famed Middle Ages. Now, Aristotle was the main non-religious authority in the Middle Ages, and he knew the Earth was round. So how could anyone forget the shape of the planet they were on? In fact, research into geodesy, which is the study of the shape of the Earth, continued. Additional proofs were stacked on top of the known evidence. Venerable Bede, a Northumbrian monk and scholar... Classic monk. Is he? Classic. Yeah? Oh, yeah, Venerable Bede. Gets all over the place. (laughs) Smart man. So he wrote in the 8th century the following, and this is a quote. The reason why the same days are of unequal length is the roundness of the earth. For not without reason it is called the orb of the world, on the pages of the Holy Scripture and of ordinary literature. It is in fact a sphere, set in the middle of the whole universe. It is not merely circular like a shield or spread out like a wheel, but resembles more a ball being equally round in all directions. So this is very explicit. And of course, his position here is still that the Earth is in the middle of the universe. Mm-hmm. And as we mentioned earlier, this will be challenged by Copernicus later on. But the, the shape is there. And medieval maps also show the Earth as spherical. In a 5th century map, you can see the Earth being divided horizontally in climate zones, like we do now, which extend to the southern hemisphere. Now, 
Those who have defended the idea of the collective amnesia that allegedly seized the Middle Ages on the subject of the shape of the Earth didn't make up their evidence. They simply took rare examples of dissent as typical. One of these is Cosmos Indicopleustus. Good work, well done. <laughs> I'm also seeing that word, and that was a challenge. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, who lived in the 6th century AD. Who thought indeed that the Earth was flat. And he was taken to be a thought leader with a huge following, while actually he was dismissed by the mainstream and thought of as a bit of a joke. He wasn't even a scholar as such. He was just a merchant who pulled his ideas out of nowhere and thought the earth took its shape from the tabernacle, which is a structure described in the Bible. And it was, for those who are not um, up to scratch on their Bible studies, uh, the tabernacle was the um, place where Moses and his people were told to worship God. So the world, according to this, would resemble some kind of a tent. Um, and in fact, in the illustrations to Cosmos's works, it looks a bit like a treasure chest that a cartoon pirate would bury in a remote I- island. That sounds delightful. I'd love to be <laughs> living on a chair. On, in a treasure chest? On. On a treasure chest. Yeah. Yeah, lovely. (laughs) So there was something else that was taken as a clue that the Earth was not believed to be around. And that is a problem of the Antipodes, which meant both the other side of the Earth, so we were both a place, and the people who lived there. Pliny the Elder a Roman author from the first century AD, was already wondering whether there are any people in the Southern Hemisphere. By the way, apologies to our surely numerous uh, listeners from the Southern Hemisphere, which we know exists now, because this is a very Northern Hemisphere-centric podcast this time. Mm -hmm. Um, Dear Wonder Cupboard, I am from the Southern Hemisphere, and I couldn't help but notice... Uh, this is an extremely Northern Hemisphere biased episode. I think uh, you should issue a second podcast featuring the experience and interviews of various Southern Hemisphere people, including myself, who inexplicably has no accent from the Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> Yours pedantically. <laughs> time people were considering the feelings of southern hemisphere people also known as the antipodes in fact pliny wrote the following passage they stand with their feet turned towards each other which to me is a bit mysterious i don't understand why that would be but anyway (laughs) uh, fine um that the vault of the heavens appears alike to all of them and that day, all of them appear to tread equally on the middle of the earth. If anyone should ask why those situated opposite to us do not fall, we directly ask in return whether those on the opposite side do not wonder that we do not fall. So he was considering the perspective of people that may be living on the other side mm. of the planet and going, but... But how did they not fall off? And like, if they don't fall off, then how do they explain that we don't fall off? Mm. <laughs> so I quite like this because he's sort of admitting that I don't have a clue and they probably don't either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the same was true of water. How could water wrap Earth and just tape her? Like, without a theory of gravity, these questions were not easy to answer. And the debate went on throughout the Middle Ages. So the problem of the Antipodes is why don't these people fall off and how does this whole thing work? But this wasn't an obstacle to the belief that the Earth was spherical. It was more of a follow-up question. It was like, the Earth is spherical, so how does this work? Hmm. No one actually forgot that the Earth was spherical. What people did forget was that it could be otherwise. You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. Flat Earthers came back only in the 19th century, 
And this is, if you just consider the West, after, what, 2,000 years? Mm. Like, nobody had believed that the Earth was flat in more than 2,000 years at that point. Well, no one who wasn't just making it up. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's say no one in the mainstream. Mm. The dominant view hadn't been that in ages. And they they became widely known, the flat earthers, following something called the Bedford Level Experiment. Interestingly, this experiment, which was more accurately a long series of observations, became known to the public just a year after the lecture that declared science and religion, and religion at war that I mentioned earlier, White's lecture. And as science and rationalism were solidifying as identities opposed to superstition. I'm tempted to say that belief in a flat earth was some sort of backlash, a reaction to a change that not everyone was comfortable with. Both the battle of allegiances between science and religion and flat earthism, of course, continue to this day. Okay, so let's talk about the Bedford level experiment. A stretch of the old Bedford River goes on straight for six miles. This is near the lovely village of Welney in Norfolk, here in the UK. By the way, I've got a really good fact on Welney. Okay. Um, so it was known at the time as the metropolis of speed skating <laughs> because it produced a lot of champions of fence skating, which was an early form of ice skating. And it was also a famous competition ground. So when the winters were cold enough to get thick ice on rivers, there were these matches of speed skating and the winners would get a big chunk of meat that was hanging outside one of the local pubs. <laughs> oh, my God, it's so British. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? The prize is meat. <laughs> now skate. <laughs> also, they had amazing nicknames. Right. Like, one of them was called Turkey's Mart. Right. For reasons unknown. Perhaps you won a big chunk of turkey? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe he was as smart as a turkey, which is not particularly smart. Uh, yeah, exactly. And then there was his, I think, brother-in-law, whose nickname was Fish, so he was Fish Smart. <laughs> uh, but that was because he was very good at swimming. So Okay. That's then, generally a bad thing if you're trying to ice skate. Yeah, uh, or <laughs> a good emergency where... measure. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> um, and also someone who was called... And I don't know how to pronounce this, but I think it's like gutter purchase That's bizarre. What a strange name. It's very strange. I thought it was really funny. Mm. Anyway, like funny Victorian names are just good, aren't they? Yeah. So anyway, so there was this long straight river. Uh, someone co- uh, called Samuel Burley Rowbotham. That's also a really good Victorian name, isn't it? Mm. Rowbotham. That's a good... That's a good you know, shouting out of the house because they've done something wrong. Samuel Burley Robotham, <laughs> get back here. <laughs> 20 lashes with the cane. <laughs> so he was also known as Parallax. Oh, come on. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Samuel Burley Robotham is a perfectly good name. Don't name yourself like you're naming a competitive StarCraft player. Yeah. Yeah. So he was the president and founder of the Flat Earth Society, also known as Zetetic Society. And he observed in 1838 that if the Earth was round, then a boat at the end of the straight stretch of river that we're talking about would not be visible from six miles or 9.6 kilometers away. So that's calculated based on the curve of mm-hmm. the Earth. So the curvature of the Earth would, would hide it. And lo and behold, you could see the boat. Mm. Uh Uh-huh. So he concluded that the Earth is flat. Allegedly, he kept repeating observations for another 32 years. (laughs) And he would also take people there going, oh, look, look at that boat, which probably he just put there every time someone came round. (laughs) I don't really know how this would work. Were the boats all the time? I just don't know. Imagine having someone round for dinner. Now, there's something I want to show you. Is it a boat, Samuel? <laughs> um, no, 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 no. Just, um, 
Just something down by the river. It's not a. Are you going to show me that boat again, Sam? <laughs> no, I just. Um, no, just come out. It's um, it's it's a little bit different. It's a bit different. See that boat? Oh God! <laughs> I had to rush my dessert for this. It's a bit like that family member that always tells the same stories, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> and you're like, and they start, and you're like, yeah, oh, you already told me this. Oh yeah, and then they continue anyway. I don't mm. know why they're just compelled to continue. Oh, I'll tell you what, Samuel, it's been such a busy day. I've been flat out all day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you look really tired. Speaking of flat. <laughs> <laughs> also, I am all for replication of studies. That's one of the backbones of scientific method. But, like, even by himself, how many times can you just look at a boat? Like, once you have exhausted all possible atmospheric conditions multiple times as you would in 32 years like what are you doing like like no one picturing his notes right sun can see boat rain can see boat fog can't see boat but suspect not due to curvature (laughs) (laughs) so but he did he continued Mm -hmm. and no one seemed to care until in 1870 an ad was published by a flat earthist named John Hampden in the periodical Zetetic Astronomy, in which he offered £500 to anyone who could show evidence that the Earth was round. Which is a lot of money. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. Uh, he, was, he was rich. Like, he was a, uh, coming from a wealthy family, um, and his interest on the Earth being flat came from reading the Bible, apparently. Mm-hmm. So, a surveyor, Alfred Russell Wallace, responded because that was an easy way to get £500 Mm. for someone that did his job. So, he looked into Parallax's research um, and immediately noticed what the problem with the Bedford level experiment was. Parallax wasn't accounting for refraction. Right. So, basically, when you look at something in the distance you may see things that are not really there. That is because the density of the air changes as you move up from the ground and that causes the light to be refracted upwards. So things that are technically below your line of sight become visible. And that's because refraction depends on the speed of light passing through air. And obviously, light becomes slower when the density is higher. Is like trying to swim through honey as opposed to swimming through water. It's mm. harder, isn't it? So mm. you go slower. But delicious. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so this changes the angle of refraction. And this phenomenon even applies to the sun. So the sun is actually slightly lower than we see it when we see it in the sky. Okay. Um, and this effect is particularly visible above water. And in fact, sailors have been accounting for it since the 17th century. So it was very well known at the time. Mm. But somehow, in 32 years of showing people around, Parallax hadn't come across his explanation. So Wallace, as a surveyor, obviously knew this. But he generously came up with the second experiment, just for good measure. It was agreed that he would use the same stretch of water used by Parallax. He put discs on poles along the water. Then he would stand on a bridge, look at the discs, and if it was right and the earth was curved, of course the discs in the middle would be slightly raised compared to the closest and further ones. So, which is what they all saw, Wallace, Hampton and the referees that they had agreed upon. But this wasn't enough to satisfy all the referees, and especially not Hampton. There were questions of the technicalities that were promptly solved, but still, they just wouldn't accept the results. So Wallace just published his results elsewhere. And you think that this is the end of that, right? Mm. Hampton did not let this go. He refused to pay Wallace the money for the wager and even started a campaign of harassment against him which lasted between 15 and 20 years, depending on who you ask. Wow. So he first took the claim to court, 
saying that two people were not entitled to settle such a question as whether the earth was flat. Despite the fact that he was the one <laughs> daring other people to do just that. <laughs> like, this man is insane. <laughs> he started publishing letters against Wallace on periodicals and even sending them directly to people, just whoever he thought that would care about this. I'm going to read a passage from what he sent to Wallace's wife. Mrs. Wallace, madam, if your infernal thief of a husband is brought home someday on a hurdle with every bone in his head smashed to pulp, you will know the reason. Do you tell him from me he is a lying infernal thief? It's redundant, fine. And as sure as his name is Wallace, he never dies in his bed. You must be a miserable wretch to be obliged to live with a convicted felon, which he wasn't, by the way. Do not think or let him think I have done with him. Uh, this, this is death threat. It's a proper death threat, yeah. But the, the legal system was not equipped to deal with this kind of thing. He did get accused of things here and there. I think he did a few days in prison, but not much happened. Wallace tried to sue him for money multiple times, never won. And this story kick-started the modern flat earth movement. And by the way, contemporary flat earthers are still hung up on the Bedford level experiment. And a lot of alleged proofs found online on all the websites that are there and you can look up are variations of it. A lot of them indeed involve water because obviously it's level and we all know this which means that the refraction phenomenon is basically a constant. Um, some involve the light of lighthouses. So again, refraction bends the light coming out of lighthouses. So that's not a reliable way of doing it. So if they only got this one simple, proven, useful notion into their heads, we would, just, we would be spared so much grief and so much B.O.B. bullshit. So it has been argued that Flat Earther's main mistake can be explained using a philosophical position called epistemic contextualism. Epistemic means something that relates to knowledge. I will use this a lot. <laughs> Not because I want to sound like a big girl that uses big words, but because <laughs> it's the shortest way of saying this relates to knowledge. Mm -hmm. I'll explain contextualism now. So contextualists claim that whether or not something is known to be true has to do with the context in which it is taken. So I, I would like to emphasize something is known to be true, not something is true. So it's not like things are true or not depending on context, but things are known to be true or not depending on context. So there are contexts in which I might know something and the same notion might be unknown to me in a different context. Okay. It will become clear. <laughs> so context can change the meaning of statements such as I'm short, for instance, right? So the truth of the statement I'm short changes somewhat if I am at a birthday party for a five-year-old because I'm short but not that short. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if I'm in the Netherlands, which appear to be entirely populated by giants. So according to contextualism, knowledge is the same. Depending on what context I choose to consider, I may or may not know something. So in this case, the context is constituted by the information considered. I know the Earth is a sphere, or actually a spheroid, because <laughs> it's squashed. <clears throat> Um, because I trust scientists on matters such as refraction and astronomy, and I welcome that knowledge into my context, right? Mm -hmm. Flat earthers instead don't consider all this context and take only their lived experience as context. And of course, from lived experience, for most people, the earth is flat because mm. we are not aware of the roundness of the earth, right? It's counterintuitive. We space very often. No. Which is sad. It is sad. Do you remember that time we went to space? Oh, that was lovely. Just a wasn't city it? break yeah. at Tranquility Bay. <laughs> Do you think that we'll manage to have a city break to like Mars City within our lifetimes? Um, 
I'm very pessimistic, so I'm going to say no. Oh. <laughs> Would you go if you could? If it was, I don't know. It depends if it's like Musk City. If it's <laughs> Elon Musk City, I might get, I might skip it. I'm like, nah. That sounds terrible, doesn't oh, it? Just big statues. Mm. Mm. Robots. Robots. I mean, I like a robot, but not if it's like praise be to the great Musk. Yeah. Supreme leader of Musk City. <laughs> I love the scenario in which Elon Musk is a supreme dictator of a planet. Yeah. I think that's very realistic. It may well be. Yeah. Anyway. The name of the first modern flat earth society, in fact, was Zetetic Society, right? Which is the one that Parallax founded, which comes from Greek for roughly, I'll see for myself. So this means that you're ruling entirely out testimony as a source of information. When you think about it, that's where most of our knowledge comes from. We simply can't experience everything as individuals. And even if we're not being ambitious and wisely decide to settle for knowing less than everything, just what it is what is necessary to lead an average life, we still don't have the resources for that. We don't have the time, physical equipment, background knowledge, skills. And that's the problem with skepticism. You can't verify everything for yourself. You can't possibly be equipped for that. Can you imagine how what would happen if, you know, you you're at work and your colleague goes there's a fire in the basement. We have to get out immediately. And you go, oh, well, I think I need to see that for myself. Uh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's why we need trust when scientific, scientific knowledge is concerned. You trust people who have studied the subject you're interested in and are better qualified to find out about it. A lot of people are uncomfortable with that and they understand it. Like, deciding whether or not to trust someone is hard. And it's so much simpler to just cut that out as a source of information if you don't have the tools to properly evaluate it, right? Scientists are people. They make mistakes. So why should you trust them? Because you are a person too and make mistakes too. Plus, you have no idea how refraction or severe telescopes work. That being said, people can also have agendas, and bias, and we'll see this multiple times during the course of this podcast. I'm not against a bit of like healthy skepticism, but that requires to reliably demonstrate bias or agendas or experimental errors through sound reasoning and evidence. Flat earthers have not done any of this. Wonder covered. And speaking of scientists being wrong... I think we should briefly talk about another fun shape that was alleged for Earth, and that is hollow Earth. I love hollow Earth. Yeah? Because I love the idea of discovering a cave that leads through to a secret underground civilization. Yeah, you should write a book about that. I think it's been done. (laughs) (laughs) This is not mentioned very often. I think mainly because it was actually proposed on scientific grounds and by an extremely well-respected astronomer. So it didn't, fit, uh, it didn't fit neatly in the science versus religion narrative. That person was Edmund Halley of comet fame. If you're not familiar with it, he calculated the trajectory of a comet that comes by periodically, and that was named after him. So Comet Halley is probably the most famous comet. He was active in the 1700s, became astronomer royal and has got a lovely plaque in Westminster Abbey here in London, which is a very prestigious place for being buried and generally plucked. (laughs) Um, So people are extremely happy to pretend this hollow earth business just never happened. (laughs) By the way, I love when this kind of thing happens, as they often did in the history of science. Like Newton was into alchemy. Einstein once spent a whole day... And this is true. Trying to measure the sexual energy in the universe. <laughs> I'm going to tell this story some other time. But I, I just love it. And not because of the legend-busting quality of it. That, you know, the pleasure in seeing someone very important or good at something fail. Which I think ultimately is just envy. Like, what I like about this is that if you want to find out new information, you sometimes have to entertain outlandish ideas. 
and spend some time trying to prove them empirically. Of course, you have to be humble enough to accept failure when you prove it wrong by yourself or others. But I think it shows commitment. So, well done. <laughs> but anyway, we'll, we'll talk about this. But like, let, let's go back to Halley and his outlandish um, ideas. So his theory of a hollow earth was based on a mistake, also, there you go, um, made by Newton in the Principia Mathematica, in which he says that the relative densities of the moon and earth were 9 to 5. This was based on a wrong calculation of the mass ratio, so of the relationship between the two masses, which was put at 1 to 26, what really is 1 to 81, which is a sizable difference. So the moon was presented as super dense compared to Earth, and Halley put forward the hypothesis that in order to account for the difference in density, the Earth might be hollow. Right. Which makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Based on, on what Newton wrote, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. In particular, there would be three additional spheres inside Earth, two of which are hollow and one at the Earth's core, which is not. So it's like Russian dolls. Okay. He thought there might be atmosphere between the layers and that there could be people there. He put forward the hypothesis that it's always day there and that the aurora borealis is caused by light escaping from one of these layers. <laughs> he even thought that provided an explanation for why the aurora is visible only in the north. He thought that because the Earth is a spheroid, squashed on the poles, that meant the crust near the poles would be thinner and more likely to have pores from which this luminous fluid could escape. Oh, it's lovely. It's lovely, isn't it? <laughs> I kind of wish it was real. You must have been so excited coming up with it. That game, I wonder when I could start leading an expedition on this one. <laughs> Astronomer Royal's going on tour, oi oi. <laughs> um, he also thought that the spheres accounted for the variation of magnetic poles. So, other fun fact, magnetic poles don't correspond to geographical poles. And the magnetic north pole moves 10 kilometres north every year. This is due to changes in electric currents in the Earth's core and in the atmosphere. So Halley's explanation was that the magnetic poles were actually on the inner sphere, which were rotating, so the spheres were rotating with the magnetic poles on their surface and taking the poles with them. And he was excited about all this because he published extensively on the philosophical transactions of the Royal Society, which was the first peer-reviewed journal. And some people did do expeditions. Yay! Disappointing expeditions. <laughs> <laughs> One of them was an adventurer called Leclerc Milfort. <laughs> I love this guy. It's brilliant, isn't yeah. it? It's such a good adventurer name. Yeah. He did this in um, modern-day Oklahoma uh, with the locals. So kudos to him for involving the natives, the Muscogee community. And they alleged that they met between 10,000 and 20,000 families living in caves under this area. Right. Which can't be true. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, that's someone trying to guarantee their next paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they thought that these families had emerged from lower strata. Um, underneath the crust. Unsurprisingly, no one ever managed to get to these lower mm. strata. Seeing stuff coming out of Earth was considered a good enough clue. All sorts of stuff was coming out of Earth. Eskimos and Mongolians. So th their whole civilizations were thought to have originated from an inner layer of the Earth. Yeah, it's one of those things where people go, yeah, did you ask them? No. No, no, no. That's <laughs> I reckon it's right. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Someone says they found skeletons with huge heads. Right. Sure. Yeah. Robots. Yeah. Because why not? And obviously in the 20th century, UFOs. Great. 
there you go. This idea was even taken further, but some who claimed that actually we are the inhabitants of the inside of Earth. Mm. And that space is all contained within Earth. So there's like this shell that we live on, and space is inside. And I call my theory the Truman Show. (laughs) (laughs) That is so true. (laughs) And some people even tried to demonstrate that you can't empirically prove that wrong. Right. Because of like adjustments that you can make on calculations that if you start from a different frame of reference then would give you the same results or something okay. like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even going to entertain this because it's yeah. So that was it. That was um Earth. That was Earth. Shall we do the references? Let's do the references. And now the references. So if you want to know more about how the history of Flat Earth was misrepresented, a great book for this that I use for this episode is Inventing the Flat Earth by Jeffrey Burton Russell. It details the ways in which Columbus was misunderstood as the person who reintroduced round earth to modernity. For more details on the Bedford level experiment, you can look up an excellent article on Scientific American which goes by the gentle title of Wallace's Woeful Wager, How a Founder of Modern Biology Got Suckered by Flat Earthers. Or you can just kind of search Flat Earth on Reddit and just see all the nonsense being farted out onto the internet constantly. Sure. Mm. <laughs> I've done that. It's actually really amusing. Like at some point I got stuck on this forum where people were debating the existence of volcanoes. <laughs> Mate, you can go see a volcano. <laughs> you can climb on top of it. I swear. <laughs> yeah, just people are interesting. So for contextualism, which is the thesis, the philosophical thesis I referred to at some point, so the, the argument that I presented was put forward by Nick Effingham in an article for the conversation titled How to Reason with Flat Earthers, brackets, it may not help though. Which could be a great country song title, come to think of it. (laughs) I'll teach you how to reason with flat earthers. It may not help, though. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) And then something, something, my girl is a flat earther. (laughs) Uh, But you still love her, Mm. obviously. Um, Anyway, so... To piece together the history of how we discovered the shape of the Earth, I pieced, to, I pieced together a lot of different sources. So I'll put a few titles and links on the website. If you don't believe me about Halley, you can look up scans of his original papers on the Royal Society website. They're very easy to read, and I'll include the titles and links in the reference list on the website as well. That's wondercupboard.com. Yes. Yes. So finally... A fun gift for the flat earther in your life. <laughs> we all know one. Oh, yeah. Um, Uncle Parallax. <laughs> the, the wonderful Isaac Asimov, which I have a soft spot for. So the science fiction writer, mm-hmm. classic science fiction writer, wrote, um, How did we find out the earth is round? which is a very short illustrated explanation of what clues we have as to the shape of the Earth. And it's lovely. So I, I invite you to look it up because it's, it's really, really cute. Great. And that was it. That's it. So Ian, what have we learned today? I think we've learned that if you're going to chart a course around the Earth, either make sure you know how big it is or bring plenty of snacks. <laughs> He was charming and dreamy, so things soon got steamy. And then he popped a question Can you see that faraway bastion? I said yes, he seemed so pleased, he took my hand. 
tipped his hat, said, darling, that's cause the earth is flat. You can see my quandary, he was hot but didn't agree, that we can easily demonstrate without needing to calculate that the earth is a sphere and that was a big deal so I set out to educate him I first tried explaining my stance mixing arguments with romance whilst gazing we saw the stars changing in the sky this proves the earth rotates but he could not see why so i took him to the seaside we saw the horizon curving and boats gliding confidently towards the edge for them to be safe and sound the earth must be around or surely they would drop but he told me to stop so i took him to outer space among the planets and the astronauts the earth was just a small blue dot but clearly around one much to my frustration he didn't think he answered the question so i had to dump his flat ass Dump his flat ass Dump his flat ass